Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right on Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ebony Lamumba, and Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. Hello, my name is Michael Morris with the Mississippi Department of Archives and History, and this particular Mississippi Book Festival panel is about Curtis Wilkie's new book, When Evil Lived in Laurel, The White Knights, and the Murder of Vernon Damer. Um, and the panelists um, to my left is Curtis Wilkie, a longtime civil rights journalist um, and recently retired professor at the University of Mississippi in journalism. Um, we also have with us Judge um, Charles Pickering, um, who was a former county prosecuting attorney during the time period described in the book. Um, and later um, joined the federal bench. He was appointed by President George H.W. Bush. And then we also have uh, Mr. Mike Landrum, who is the son of Tom Landrum, one of the main characters in the book, along with his mother, Ann Landrum, who was wife to Tom Landrum. Um, as I said, one of the main characters of the book. I wanted to start off um, by Curtis Wilkie giving us an overview of the book, um, kind of how you ran into this subject and kind of how these characters, Vernon Damer and um, Tom Landrum, play into the story that you tell. Michael, it kind of came to me circuitously um, and secretively about three, more than three years ago uh, that these papers existed somewhere down in uh, Jones County, Mississippi, uh, by someone who had... Uh, joined the Ku Klux Klan at the request of the FBI and had uh, reported on them for several years. And uh, eventually I learned it uh, came from the Landrum family. I went down and met them in Laurel, and they met me, and thank God they uh, turned the papers over to me. And it's a a wonderful story, uh, despite all the terrible things that take place uh, in the book, this is a story of, of heroism on the part of uh, uh, not only Tom and Aunt Landrum, but also uh, Judge Pickering, and certainly uh, another major character, Vernon Damer, who was uh, a leader in the movement in uh, in his native uh, Forest County next door, and and then uh, so many of the uh, side actors in the story that lived down in uh, that part of the Piney Woods section in Mississippi. But it it essentially revolves around uh, the activities of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, which was the most vicious of all the Klan groups that existed in Mississippi in the 60s, and their target became uh, Vernon Damer. They were determined to... uh, uh, to kill him because they disliked the progress he was making in voter registration uh, down in Hattiesburg, and they uh, regret, regrettably succeeded. So, but they were eventually brought to justice, and uh, uh, Tom Landrum certainly had a role in that. It's hmm. interesting, and um, Judge Pickering, you were actually a prosecuting attorney uh, during that time. Could you? kind of give us a sense of what life was like down there in Jones County during this time? Yeah, it's very difficult today 
to realize uh, actually at that time you could say there was a reign of terror because Sam Bowers was described by the FBI as being the most vicious man to ever don a white robe. Hmm. And he said he organized the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan because the other clans were not violent enough. Uh, he was a racist, um, and unfortunately he used Christian teaching to sort of advance it, but I'm convinced that he was not a Christian who, uh, because of his Christian views, became a racist. I'm convinced he was a racist who searched the Bible Scripture in order to try to, he manipulated people. And he named himself as the, as the imperial wizard of the White Knights, the Ku Klux Klan. They had titles like the exalted uh, Cyclops, the giant. Uh, uh, they gave them titles and it, a sense of, of, of belonging, and it's really unfortunate period of our, I'm glad that Curtis, and Curtis did an excellent job of taking the notes that the Landrum family turned over to him that Tom gave to the FBI. Um, and in the book, Tur- Curtis mentions sort of how I got involved in it. Most of it was Tom and I worked together in the youth court. I was a county attorney. He was a youth court counselor. And we were, we were very good friends, and I had a great deal of respect. And Tom says, and it, uh, he said, uh, I noticed that Charles Dew saw me hanging around with Klansmen, and I could tell he didn't like that. And he said, uh, I respect his friendship. So Tom asked me to go fishing, and in a boat, he told me that morning, said, Charles, I'll tell you a secret, but you've got to keep it because if you don't keep it, it could mean my life. And it really was that serious. And then he told me that the FBI had come to him, asked him to join the Klan and to report back to them. And Tom did what Tom did was, was brave. You, you could hardly realize how, how dangerous it was today then. And what he did was one of the major th- things that contributed to uh, destroying the power of the Ku Klux Klan in Jones County. And I'm glad Curtis said when, it lived, when evil lived in Laurel, because Laurel has changed entirely from that time. And we've had two black mayors who did excellent jobs. And we had the president of the Jones County Board of Supervisors who was black. So... Uh, Miss, Jones County and Mississippi, we're certainly not perfect in race relations, but we have come a long way. Gotcha. Gotcha. And Mike and Ann, this really impacted you two. Um, could you kind of talk about those discussions that you had with Tom in terms of his activities with the FBI? Um, Ann, won't you start? Well, uh, Tom was at the youth court. He was a counselor, worked with young people, and he didn't an excellent job. He was really, it was really good detective. He could just, he could talk to uh, young people and they would tell him things that, you know, they wouldn't tell anybody else. But uh, sort of the, I think the word sort of got around that he was, uh, how good he was. And Bob Lee, uh, the FBI, uh, would come by the office. And of course there were children, uh, teenagers that would get in trouble and Tom would help them with that. And uh, he knew that he could depend on Tom. And uh, mm. it, that Tom's reputation that he was just a good guy, just mm. a good guy. And um, so when, when they asked Tom to, uh, to uh, join the Klan, which was a big step, it was a big step. Of course, the first thing we had to do was talk about it. And then Tom said, well, you know, we've got to talk to your mom. Gertrude, my mother, mm-hmm. and uh, she was like a second mom to him. Uh, he, uh, my dad died when I was very young, and mother was 34 years old, had five children, and she raised us by herself, and we all turned out decent. And uh, 
Then when Tom and I dated and got married, uh, she just became a mother to him. Uh, and he had a lot of respect for her. So the first thing we did, well, we needed to talk to mom about it, my mother about it. So we went on a, a camping trip, took mother with us, and, and so Tom told her what the FBI had asked him to do. And she said, well, the very first thing we have to do is we have to pray about it. Hmm. That's the very first thing we had to do. She was, if it hadn't been for God, I, I don't know if mother and all of us children would have made it. But uh, she was a firm believer in asking God to, to lead you in whatever you did. And so we did. We prayed about it and then uh, talked about it some more. The next one we got up, and, and uh, we all decided that he had to do it. Hmm. Somebody had to do something. Hmm. And uh, that's in the book, and I, I love what Curtis did with the book. He did hmm. a really good job, and I, I appreciate that so much. But uh, Mother was a big supporter, and she was the only one that actually we could talk to. Hmm. And then Tom told Charles, <clears throat> Charles, and um, he knew about it, so you really couldn't talk to anybody. You know, <laughs> yeah. I couldn't call somebody up, my sister or brothers, and say, oh, let me tell you what's happening, what's going on with us. But there were some terrifying times during that time because we had five children that were young, and we were active in church school, PTA, the community. Tom was always uh, trying to get something going in the community, like to better the community, uh, like uh, the waterworks, uh, uh, natural gas in our area. <laughs> he was always doing something, and he'd always do a good job. So uh, so we jumped in wholeheartedly <laughs> to it, and... Um, it was there were some perilous times, some really scary times during those years, those four years. Mike, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, well, you know, it's been really um, 25 years ago or so. Mom and Dad called us in on a Christmas because a book had been self-published by Chet Dillard, and it had Dad's name on it in the book that he was at a White Nights meeting, and that just crushed my mom and Dad like mm. good grief, you know. And so, um, so they had told us, look, if anything ever happens to us, there's more to this story. It's back there in the lockbox. And, and so they was mentioning the journals and, uh, probably a thousand pages of journals, uh, that mom, actually my dad would get the information from these meetings and come home at night and mom and him would scribble it out on a legal pad, everything he could remember. The next day she was typing it. She was a secretary at the youth court. She was typing it on carbon paper. And then so she would give him a copy to give the FBI every week, but then keep a copy. And um, so, you know, he told us that those papers were there. And uh, But it wasn't until about five years ago when his health started getting bad. They had tried to do something with the story all these years, but could mm -hmm. never do it. And uh, I were really scared to do it um, still. And so um, they allowed me to take the journals and see them for the first time. And um, I haven't slept a lot since. Because <laughs> Let me ask you this. So when Curtis comes to you and asks to look at these journals and possibly write a book about the information that was in there, how did you vet him? How did you make sure that he was going to tell the story, you know, accurately? Well, what we did, we went through uh, the Frisconas here, Mike Frascona here in town, and they helped us digitize everything and organize, which was the first step. Then we put it in what we call the box, 
uh, which was just compressed down to where, you know, anybody could look at it. So um, uh, actually we found uh, Curtis uh, through John Evans at Lemire Books here. And uh, Mr. Mike Frascona went to Oxford and laid the box in his lap. And I think Curtis wasn't planning on writing another book until he got the <laughs> box put in his lap. But then no one else could have written a story like Curtis Wilkie wrote this story. He walked, Curtis walked it out, and he and my dad were close in age. So it was just amazing to watch them visit with each other and tell stories and, and just see the finished product has just really, really been special. And Curtis, you kind of touched on this, but I guess I'm just fascinated as to why these Klansmen chose Vernon Damer as their target. Um, could you kind of speak to that a little bit? Was it his business? Sure. And- well, he was, uh, he was not their first target. We have to remember they were responsible for the murders in Neshoba County in 64 that were among the most horrific murders of the whole civil rights movement and uh, uh, kind of turned things around for the movement and, and brought so much momentum to it because of the public disgust. So uh, that was 64. It was in late 65 after Tom Landrum had uh, uh, joined the Klan. He began hearing about how uh, the target is this guy down south, uh, south of Laurel in Hattiesburg, and it was Vernon Damer. And uh, Damer had been instrumental for years in uh, building up uh, to the extent he could, voter registration among the black community in Forest County. And he was being thwarted by the circuit clerk there who was not at all helpful. Very few blacks were even registered to vote in Forest County. So his success after the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 65, uh, the white knights knew, you know, they had to do whatever they could to stop this voter registration or else, God forbid, Charles, you would have a a, a black mayor and a, a, a black president of a board of supervisors, which happened because of the, the Voting Rights Act and the work of so many people to register people to vote. So mm-hmm. he was a natural target for them. I think, the White Knights, go ahead. Uh, as I've mentioned, were created because... Uh, uh, he, did, he did not, Sam Bowers did not think the other clans were violent enough. So they referred to him as the end down south, that who was registering all these voters and he was being successful. And Vernon Damer was highly respected in the white community and the black community, and he was having very much success in registering black voters. So they said, something's got to be done down to this man down south. And they talked about that, and, talk, and nobody else would do it. So they also viewed themselves, we're going to show in, go in and show other folks how to do it. Hmm. Now, what their overall objective was, they saw segregation going down the drain. They saw Jim Crow going down the drain, and they were trying to stop that. And uh, that's, what, uh, that's what I think. Uh, and because he was so highly respected, they had to make an example out of him. I think what's so surprising to folks, especially at our Civil Rights Museum, when they come and learn about this story, is the fact that it happened in 1966. And that kind of challenges a lot of folks, especially the general public's understanding of what that time period is in terms of the civil rights movement. You know, we grow up learning that it's from 1954 to 1965. Well, there's still activity happening. 
and I guess I'm wondering, Curtis, and anybody can answer this, you know, why don't more folks know about Vernon's story? And um, why is his story so powerful to you? Why do you think it's left such an impact um, on folks when they learn about it? Well, I, I hope it gets learned because uh, Vernon Daybert deserves a lot more recognition than he got. He, uh, people knew about the case in Mississippi when it happened. Uh, I was a young reporter in the Delta then, uh, nowhere near Laurel, but uh, uh, I heard about it, you know, and became aware of what Vernon Damer stood for. Um, so, you know, if the book does nothing else, I hope it, it earns some recognition for the work that he did and also for the courage that uh, people like uh, the people on this program with us uh, were responsible for. Mm-hmm. My wife thinks one of the most poignant pictures in Curtis's book is where <coughs> Vernon Damon's sons, who were in the military <coughs> and serving our nation at that time, they were standing looking at the ruins where his house had been burned. And that really shows how bad and warped these people were that they could do a dastardly deed like this against someone whose sons were serving our country at the time. Right, right. Do you remember hearing about the murder of Vernon Damer in 1966? And what was your impression? Of that? Oh, yeah. we Everybody heard about it. You know, it was big news then uh, that this had, this had happened. And... Um, um, it was just terrifying, you know, to think about what they went through. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Tom, you know, going to meetings and and we were always afraid that, uh, you know, they always talked about informers and what would happen. And, and um, uh, but, and, and there were times that uh, he would say, you know, maybe we just need to, get out of this. But then we'd talk about it and decide, yeah, we have to keep going because actually if he had gotten out, they might have said, oh, yeah, he was the one doing this. He was the one doing this. And then, we, you know, we would have been in worse danger almost. But uh, it was, uh, we just had such such empathy for, 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 for the families that went through all of these terrible things for Actually, no reason. No reason. So, Mike, could you just kind of tell us a little bit about what your father was like, what it was like growing up uh, with Tom Landrum? Wow. Um, Dad dad was a leader. Uh, He got things done. Uh, I'm the youngest of five children. Uh, My dad was an encourager. Uh, He was a people builder. Um, You know, he was a runaway himself. At age 13, uh, felt like he wasn't loved at home, uh, had a, what would be called a learning disability today, uh, got embarrassed at the school board, on the blackboard one day at school, and that day he just took off and hitchhiked to Nebraska, stayed gone nine months. And um, he, um, you know, he came home and re- just went to another level, met Sweet Thing here, that's what he called mom, Sweet Thing. <laughs> Met Sweet Thing on the school bus, his first day on the bus back home. And, uh, you know, they ended up, you know, getting married, of course, and dedicating their lives to troubled youth. And Tom was a coach. He was a coach. He was a coach before he became youth court counselor. That's correct. What kind of coach? 
uh, just a, a, a basketball, basketball gotcha. football. And um, but Dad went on and he played junior college ball. He he went to Louisville and 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 um, for one year, and um, after JUCO. And uh, but he he was a he was a people person and just like you know, Mom said you know I think Dad and Mom saw what everybody were going through in the black community and just said what is what if this was our kids what mm-hmm. if this was our home. And and just really felt like somebody had to do something and not just, you know, what's neat about it, I've always known I had a great parents. But after I got the journals, I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Next level, you know, and they just really, it's been a, been really a beautiful story for us as a family. Michael, one of, the, one of the things in the book that impressed me was, and I knew what Tom was going through because Tom and I were... Uh, but I didn't think about Ann. Gotcha. And when uh, Tom would get discouraged and say, I don't know if I can keep doing this, and he'd go home to Ann, she'd say, this is bigger than us. Hmm. We committed to do it. we got to see it through. I, I came away very impressed with her determination and her back backing Tom. Hmm. Michael, uh, it's an anecdote in the book in which Mike uh, figures he was, I think, maybe 10 years old, uh, Tom told me the story, and I think it's also reflected in his journals, but after the attack on the Damer house, the uh, White Knights left several, you know, pieces of evidence behind, including a car, which was incredibly stupid, but uh, some of them were spent shotgun shells, and they quickly had a suspect his name was Lightning Smith. It turns out he's the guy that shot out the front window of the Damer home and uh, allowed them to throw the uh, giant Molotov cocktails into the house. Well, he left behind uh, the shotgun shells. The FBI collected them, and they went to Tom Landrum, and they said, you know, this guy, Lightning Smith, you know, we're pretty sure that the gun he had is the one that fired uh, into the uh, Damer home. Uh, there's going to be a turkey shoot. Uh, is there some way maybe you could get uh, some shells from uh, uh, Lightning Smith's gun? Well, Tom brought his three sons with him for the turkey shoot out in the country, and um, he told the boys, you guys, uh, we... Don't want to leave a mess behind. Uh, want you guys to pick up things. And he encountered Lightning Smith, and they admired each other's guns. And Tom said, "Well, why don't I fire a few rounds with with your gun? You can fire a few with me." And he fired three or four rounds. Shotgun shells went out, and he asked Mike to pick them up. So ten-year-old Mike picked up evidence that they turned over to the FBI and it matched uh, uh, what what they had found out at uh, the Damer home. Hmm. Mike, one of the things, these Klansmen were really inept at committing crime. And you look back on it and they seem like almost the three dunces of the Street Stooges. Uh, one of the guys that was on the Damer uh, firebombing had 
made a quick holster draw so he could draw his pistol real fast. And as a result, he lost his pistol there. And that was part of the evidence that went against him. Mm -hmm. And then one of them was dumb enough that he thought the other car that was there with him having burned was somebody coming to check on him or discover it, and he shot out a tire. So, you know, they were really, uh, they were not very good at what they were doing. So um, a lot of these individuals were arrested. Right. And, you know, some of them were taken to trial, including Sam Bowers. And my understanding is, Judge Pickering, you actually testified against him. Yes, I testified against Sam Bowers in his first trial back in the late 60s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things and I did want to make this point, the juries in most of those civil rights cases back during that era were hung because there usually was at least one Klansman on most every jury. So it was almost impossible to get a conviction at that time. But Mississippi, since that time, has come back, and I don't really know, uh, practically all of these cases have been re-prosecuted and convicted because the thinking and the mentality of the people of Mississippi had changed that they no longer condemned this kind of violence. And, uh, they, uh, and you also uh, didn't have Klansmen on the jury to speak up for these folks. They, uh, there were 14 people that were arrested within a couple of months of the raid at the Damer home, including Sam Bowers and virtually all of the people who were actively involved. They missed one person who turned out to be the uh, Citizen of the Year in Laurel, uh, uh, who was crowned that honor right before he got indicted a couple of years later. But uh, as, as Charles says, uh, so many of these juries would wind up with uh, hung juries. And uh, eventually, there were about six people who were convicted. They had to make runs at uh, Sam Bowers for years. And it was only in 1998 that he was finally brought back to trial, uh, 30, whatever, help me with my math, uh, 32 years after the murder, Hmm. Uh, and the trial was in Hattiesburg, and he was finally convicted, and there, you know, I have my own memories because by that time I was a reporter for the Boston Globe, and I covered that trial in 98, and... um, And my understanding is that you next to him. And happened to uh, the, the judge let the reporters come into the chamber as they were selecting the jury, and we sat around a long table, and I suddenly realized I was sitting next to the Imperial Wizard himself, who had two Mickey Mouse pins in his lapels. And at the recess, I said, uh, excuse me, Mr. Powers, but what's with it with Mickey Mouse? And he looked at me and he went, hmm. wouldn't say a word. <laughs> he was one weird cat. <laughs> judge Helfrich, who is circuit judge in Forest County now, was the district attorney who prosecuted uh, Vernon, uh, prosecuted Sam Bowers for the death of, of uh, Mr. Damer uh, that uh, Mr. Wil- that Curtis Wilkins just described taking place. And I think it is it's, that he was convicted, and for whatever reason, his two clan associate, uh, or they were, well, they were members of the Klan, not they were associated with the Klan, and they represented him, and they did not file an appeal. So Sam Bowers died in the Mississippi Penitentiary uh, a few years ago, and there was talk that he was going to be buried in a pauper's grave, 
and one of his relatives anonymously claimed the body and, and they took it. But uh, justice was finally done. Uh, Sam Bowers paid the price for what he did. Mm-hmm. And this uh, Mickey Mouse signs sort of shows you something about uh, Sam Bowers' personality. He was a weird cat. <laughs> uh, just a couple of things to note, just uh, that Mississippians watching it might be interested Bob Helfrick, who prosecuted Bowers the last time and succeeded in convicting him, he turned over all of the papers he used in that trial to the University of Southern Mississippi Library, and it is a a gold mine too for anybody interested in civil rights during that period. And then uh, uh, pat your own organization on the back, uh, Michael. Uh, you know, the archives has some very valuable material, plus the Civil Rights Museum has a, a special uh, site for the Damer case. But there at the archives, there's an extraordinary uh, series of long interviews with Sam Bowers uh, back in the 80s, where you really get an insight into his strange character and his uh exotic religious beliefs that he felt justified uh, what the White Knights were doing. Hmm. Now, Mike, um, one of the things I did catch while reading um, Curtis's excellent book was the fact that you can trace some of your descendants back to Newton Knight and the Free State of Jones. And I was wondering if that was something that you knew about when you were growing up. Um, is that something that your dad talked about at home? or You know, Dad always mentioned Newt Knight's story, so I understood somewhat the story. Of course, I watched the movie, you know, that was made years later, or just a few years ago, and really got to see the whole story. But then a friend of mine in Texas had sent me an article with um, the Landrum name as being part of that group. Mm-hmm. And then Curtis expanded on it in the book, and it was really, I had not, heard that the Landrums were in that group. I just mm-hmm. knew the Newt Knight story. Right. But it was really interesting, you know, 100 years prior that these uh, Landrum men were a part of that Union regiment. Mm-hmm. And did you ha- want to add anything to that? Um, do you think um, his descendants might have, I don't know, do you think he was building on a legacy when he was doing what he was doing um, during the movement, being a unpaid informant for the FBI during that particular time? Um, I, 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 I just, he was, I, I'm really proud of Tom. I'm mm-hmm. really proud of Tom that he did this. And um, it's, uh, it's something that uh, for years, through 50-something years, that um, we talked about um, almost daily, not to everybody but to each other. And then to our children, you know, when we told them. But, you know, when he first joined the uh, Klan, well, when he told the FBI that he would do it, they told him that when he was through with it, that they would give him a letter Hmm. explaining, you know, what he had done, that he was an informant for the FBI. And so when it was over, uh, he asked Bob Lee about it. And uh, he met Bob Lee, and Bob Lee said, uh, he asked for the letter. He said, well, J. Edgar Hoover is not going to give you the letter. He's not going to give you the letter. So to me and to us, this book is our letter. Hmm. 
And um, I, I'm I'm so proud of Tom for doing it because he was a he was a he was brave. Mm-hmm. He was a strong man. Um, what did Tom ended up? Did he continue working at the courthouse um, after these? Well, visits? he worked at the uh, courthouse, and then uh, the Department of Youth Services uh, they moved him to the Columbia Training School. He was administrator there for years, and then the Family Court in Pascagoula they uh, had him hired him to come down there. He was administrator of the Family Court in, in Pascagoula, mm. and for years, and then uh, my mother uh, got she had cancer. And she, where we lived, was home to her. That was my family's land. And she liked being at our house there and at Tucker's Cross and Highway 15 South and Laurel. And uh, so Tom retired, hmm. and we came home. And uh, that's when, uh, you know, we built the business a few years later. And uh, 38 years ago, we started the business, hmm. Landrum Homestead and Village. And uh, he loved that. He loved history. Hmm. He's just so obsessed with preserving history. Hmm. And um, he did a really good job. Hmm. It's a great place. I might add, Michael, on the the letter that J. Edgar Hoover denied giving mom and dad. Um, Bob Lee told dad to meet him at Jones Junior College Mm -hmm. in the parking lot, and he had something for him. And so dad, they met, and, and so... He gave Dad a, he said, well, look, Hoover's not going to give you the letter. But he, he gave him a box of thirty-eight special cartridges <laughs> for his pistol. And so that was his parting gift. And uh, it's interesting, Dad was a keeper. He, he was big on keep, keeping things. And so he wrote on the back of it who gave it to him, where it was. The and date. The, the date, date and everything. Yeah. So it, we have the actual, we have all the things from the yeah. actual time. But... Uh, um, Curtis, uh, talk a little bit more about, you know, the research that went into this book. Because one of the first things I noticed is how thick the book is. Um, so there's a lot of information in there. And I heard you talk earlier about the fact that it was helpful that you were around and were a reporter during that time period. Kind of talk a little bit more about that. You well, you know, I, you know, Tom was not much older than, than I am today. So I lived through... You know the movement days, uh, working for a newspaper in in Clarksdale. So I had that personal history and uh, knowing some of the major figures, particularly in in Clarksdale, Aaron Henry, who was the state president of the NAACP. And once uh, Medgar Evers was murdered in '63, Aaron really became the uh, go-to guy uh, in Mississippi. So. All the major movement figures, including Martin Luther King, when they came to Mississippi, they would come through Clarksdale to, you know, pay their respects to to Aaron. And Aaron never failed to let me know when, uh, as he called him, a, a dignitary would be in town, and he would arrange for me to talk to them. So you know, I talked to Dr. King. You know, I, the one I remember is Jackie Robinson came through and uh, I, I talked to talked to him so uh, that that certainly helped but I think in, in terms of uh, what the book has other than you know the overall big story is through Tom Landrum's 
papers and his descriptions of the meetings that uh, I was able to develop uh, kind of these characters who were in the Klan. I was able to describe what they were talking about and in the language that they were using and uh, the threats that they were making and uh, the hatred they sometimes had of other Klansmen. There was a great deal of dissension and backbiting and, uh, as Charles said, you know, blundering with their operations. You know, thank God they were no more effective than they were. Uh, they were uh, uh, pretty inept at so many of the things that, that they tried to do. Hmm. So uh, through, uh, through these papers, I think uh, if the book accomplished anything else, it, it, is, it gives you... Uh, a real sense of what these Klan meetings were like and who was saying what and who were these people uh, other other than Sam Bowers, all these people who were ministers who belonged to the Klan, uh, one of the guys who drove the uh, one of the cars to, uh, to about, uh, the uh, uh, Damer house was a minister. His name was Cecil Sessom. And um, he participated in, in his murder. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, it, it, it's a, it's an, as I said earlier, it's, a, it's an ugly story, but uh, there's a lot of transcendent uh, behavior on people who were determined to uh, quash the Klan and uh, put it out of existence. I was going to say, just picking up, maybe you're about to answer this already, but how did this moment kind of motivate you? How do, do you see strands going back to this activity that's going on in the 60s in your later work um, in which you went on to become a federal judge? Well, Michael, it shows the transition that has taken place in Mississippi and uh, what will be forever indelibly in, embedded in my mind is when the uh, Freedom Riders started coming south. Uh, they, you know, they just passed, you had to give the Miranda warning. And so the police officers relied on the prosecutors a, a lot more. And prosecutors were much more involved in investigating then than they are now. And I was with the police one afternoon when they came into the lunch counters, I believe, whether it was Woolworth or Cress, and uh, an awful lot of young black men uh, went to the lunch counters to, to integrate them. And all of a sudden, uh, the whole... It was one of the most hectic scenes I've ever seen as uh, Klansmen took out blackjacks and and ball bats and started hitting these young blacks over the head. That was a terrible scene. And, uh, you know, that convinced me absolutely that we had to stand against that and we had to do everything we could to stomp it out. And I I thought Curtis's book is the first book that has gone inside the Klan. Other books have written about what they did, but Curtis actually goes into the Klan meetings and and has the discussion with the Klansmen. And I've often asked myself what motivated these guys. And I think part of it was racism, but I think it also was people who perhaps, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them were people who had not been as successful as they would like to have been. And this gave them a sense of belonging. They were involved in a movement. They were important. They were the exalted cyclops or or the giant or this, that, and the other. So they had a group this. Now, I think the things that destroyed the power of the Klan was, number one, 
the work Tom did because the Klansmen got to where they didn't know who they could talk to and they were afraid they didn't know who was talking and they were afraid that whatever they said would be reported. So Tom's work really shattered the confidence they had in one another. And then <clears throat> I think the second and probably one of the most dramatic things is that after those folks were caught so quickly, after they firebombed Vernon Damer's house and grocery store was, that there were the people that were involved in it were charged with a serious crime. And a lot of people who really were not that deeply involved particularly said, man, I can't be involved in this group anymore. I mean, this is serious business. So I think the Tom, their fear of who's talking, number one, and number two, this is serious stuff. We got to get out of it. We can't be associated with the Klan anymore. And then Bob Lee had come to me with a list of uh, uh, over 100 acts of violence that the Klan had committed in Jones County. And I had taken that material, drafted a statement, and the, the sheriff, the district attorney, the chief of police, and the mayor all joined me in condemning violence. So, and we asked people to sign statements that they were for law and order, and people would say, I, I don't have to do, the, do that. I'm for law and order, but I don't need to say Well, that was just their way of not taking a statement. But law and order had broke down in Jones County, and we had to build public opinion. So <clears throat> the effort to build public opinion, plus Tom creating such uh, distrust among the Klan, and then it becoming real serious after the Vernon Damer instance, I think those are the things that broke the back of the Klan. Well, we're kind of running out of time, so I wanted to give everybody an opportunity to make some closing remarks. I want to start with Ann, if you had anything that you wanted to add at the end here. Well, I'm just so pleased with the book. I'm giving my family. We're all so pleased <clears throat> with it. And uh, um, Curtis just did an excellent job. <laughs> and uh, um, I just hope it, I hope when people read it, they, uh, it's a good history lesson. It's a good history lesson, and uh, I've I've read it, and uh, I keep it on by my bed, and it, it, most every night I read little parts of it again, even though I know the story. But uh, I just hope it uh, somehow will make a difference to people on how they feel about things. Uh, we need to have, uh, you know, a better understanding. Yes. Yeah, um, same as mom. We we feel like, you know, this book really provides an education to a lot of people about civil rights movement that they didn't fully understand was happening. Uh, but I think, um, so I think that way, and I think also it shows that, you know, like Laurel, you know, most people didn't know that part of Laurel, you know, today. But wow, it sure looks different today. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a good contrast, and uh, but also we hope ultimately it just helps people understand each other better and unifies our 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 state and um, our country. You know, Michael, I would hope that we can resolve that we're going to stop emphasizing the things that divide us and spend more time emphasizing the things that unite us. We're all created in God's image. We're all human beings, and we basically all want the same thing. And this, uh, you know, for the Klan to say, we've got a right to snuff out the life of Vernon Damer, I mean, that is the extreme. And today, the cancel culture, you have the same thought. People thinking, I'm arrogant enough that what I think is so important that if you disagree with me, you don't exist. Uh, we need to get rid of that kind of thought. Carter. Well, I would just say, you know, 
from my perspective as a writer, uh, it was a you know unique opportunity to uh, deal with uh, uh, a fresh angle to an old story of the civil rights movement, which I grew up with and hopefully became pretty conversant with uh, over the years. Um, yeah. It, the title is When Evil Lives in Laurel, and it doesn't reflect necessarily well on Laurel. So I wondered, you know, how I was going to be received when I went to Laurel, I guess, the day after the publication date. And the people could not have been nicer mm -hmm. uh, in, in Laurel. And, uh, you know, I can uh, safely say, you know, evil is at least that evil from the 60s it's been purged from from laurel that uh, you know i i like to be as positive as i can and i, I hope it emphasizes the fact that uh, while you had evil very active there um you had some good people who uh were even then uh, working hard to uh, eliminate that threat and uh, they got the upper hand in Laurel today. Well, Curtis, Charles, Mike, and Ann, I want to thank you all for joining us today. Be sure to purchase a copy of When Evil Lived in Laurel from your local bookstore. Um, and we'll see you next year at the Mississippi Book Festival. Thank you so much. Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's literary lawn party. <laughs>